All right. Well, we have been spending the um, the past year uh, plus looking at um, Christ, focusing on the Christ, considering the shadow of Christ, the life of Christ, return of Christ. We then begin looking at the reign of Christ, and as we considered the reign of Christ, that transitioned us into what we're looking at now, and that is the reflection of Christ. Because we talked about that if Christ is residing and reigning in our hearts, then it'll be reflected in our life. And that everything we say, everything we do, how we live, should be, will be, ultimately, a reflection of who or what is residing and reigning in our hearts. And so if my flesh is reigning in my heart, then my flesh is what's going to be seen in my life. But if Christ is actually living and reigning in my heart, then it should be Christ that is seen throughout. And, um, and so we begin looking at how Christ begins to be reflected in my life. And the first thing we looked at is the, that Christ said that out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. And so that, that if Christ is residing and reigning in my heart, then my speech is going to show forth that, that that he's going to be reflected in everything that I, everything that I say. And secondly, it was our finances, and that, that um, where our treasure is, there our heart's going to be also, and so that how I spend my money, how the, the process of making money and spending the money, the, the, the appropriations of it and the acquisition of it, is going to, it's going to reflect Christ as well, what I do with it. And then three weeks ago, we began considering our relationships, and we began looking at that from Ephesians chapter 5, looking at, um, the wife's reflection of Christ in her relationship to her husband, and we saw that that reflection would be submission. And then two weeks ago, we considered then the husband's reflection of Christ, and that is love, loving his wife. And then we moved last week, continuing on in the book of Ephesians, into chapter 6, because from Ephesians 5 into chapter 6, there are three major relationship groups that Paul talks about in which um, reflects Christ. And so we move then into the parental relationships in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, and from talking about the children and the parents. And last week, we considered then the children and that how they were supposed to honor their parents. And one of the chief ways that they were told to honor their parents is to obey them. If you don't obey your mom and dad, then honestly, you're showing them great dishonor. And so one of the, the, the greatest, foremost ways that we can show honor to our parents is by being obedient to them. Today we want to move into that second phase then, that second side of the, of the parental relationships, and that is the parents. Now, chiefly, as we look at Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, we see in verse 4 it says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So specifically, as we're talking about parents, the Bible really talks predominantly to who? the fathers, to the dads. Um, it talks to the mom at times, but predominantly throughout the entire Bible, throughout the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, whenever there are um, commands, challenges, admonitions given to the parents, they are, as a whole, given to the, the dad. Now, in stating that, I go back to the husband-wife relationship. And as we talk to the husbands, who is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home? The The husband. The dad. And so if the husband is seeking to be the spiritual leader of the home, he not only will be the spiritual leader of his wife, but he also will be the spiritual leader of his, his children as well. And so we want to look at this parental reflection then of Christ. And we can see that I've summed it up in that word of training. Now, there are, I would translate things a little bit differently here in, in this verse 4, but as a whole, this is fine. And as we look at verse 4, 
we see that there's both a negative command to the fathers or to the parents, but also a positive command. The negative command is to not provoke our children. And the positive command is to bring them up, to bring our children up, to rear our children. And then we're given two um, descriptors of how we're supposed to be bringing them up as well. And so we want to look at each of these commands. First of all, the command not to provoke, and then secondly, the, the command to rear them or to train them properly. First of all, as we look at this negative command not to provoke our children, I want to, I want to see that there is an effect. There is an effect that is, that is caused, and we'll look at the cause in just a moment, the provocation side of it, but the effects that are caused when we don't do things properly as dads and parents in training our children. First of all, the first effect is that we will see wrath. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. It is easy for us as dads to exasperate. And the word here for provoking, and we'll look at this in a moment, is literally the word to exasperate. To exasperate our children to the point where they become extremely angry. They become wrathful. They become... Um, angry without um, self-control. Now, I want you to understand that concept of self-control because we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. But they become angry without self-government, without self-governance, without self-control. They're not able to control themselves, and so they do that. Now, what causes that? What? 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 Or we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, the, the second effect we see in Colossians 3, verse 21, where it's parallel passages as fathers... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And the word provoke here um, really means, refers to an intentional action seeking to stir the pot. To stir the pot. And so that dads, we can, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, how we do this. But we can then go in with our kids and we can stir the pot. We can use our authority and our power and we can go in and just start to cause the row things up. And all that does is it brings discouragement to our kids. So let's talk about these causes real quickly. First of all, there's the abuse of power. The abuse of our power, which I was just talking about. Where we have the authority, I am the what? I'm the papa. And when I say that no one should do this, nobody should do it. There's no other reason other than I choose for that to happen. Does that make sense? And so I misuse my power, I misuse my authority. And so it may be that it's verbal abuse. It could be that it's physical abuse. There are times when I have struggled in this realm. I, when before I was saved, I was a very angry young man. You've heard those kind of, you know, the angry young man stuff. And, and I know that's still out there. That's, that's still part of the dross of my life. That, that every once in a while, if something happens just right, and I'm not in the word enough that all of a sudden the what? The cork goes boop, off the bottle and, and whoever happens to be around gets spewed with the, uh, the spray. Okay? And I'm not proud of that, but that's a fact. That's a fact. And guys, most of us are that way. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier about most men are, are not confrontational. Okay? And, and the sad thing is then, if, if we're not confrontational, if we're not willing to do that, that means that we are doing what? We're holding it in, and we're building it up, and the pressure is, is just, it's, it's just there. And one of these days, the pressure does what? 
it pops. If Chris was here this morning, you know, we could talk about that, that pressure regulator that's on the, on the, the hot water heater. You know, it's, it's there for a reason. Anybody know what happens when, when one of those things pops? That hot water goes, <laughs> that's exactly right. And it's there for a reason. It's so that the hot water heater doesn't what? Blow up. That's exactly right. Because if that, 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 if that valve wasn't there to let the, the water go, then it would continue to build a pressure where that, that hot water heater would become a bomb by itself. Okay? Well, that's, guys, it's you and me. But ladies, I don't want to make this in just a, a beat up on the dads thing. Because honestly, I believe that you're involved in this. If we go back to the, the verses one to three, and it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, honor your father and your mother. And so this is done in parallel with it. And so it comes back. And you moms can do the same thing just as well. You can provoke your children to wrath just as much um, in the same light. And you can exasperate them, um, and you can stir the pot. You know, it's, it's very easy for us to go in and, and to be able to just kind of harass the kids for something um, and, and bring them great discouragement. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit more in this side of it, and it is the misuse of standards. Standards are biblical. God has standards that are there in his word for us to apply to in our homes and with our children. However, standards can be misused. We can have undefined standards. What's an undefined standard? What's well, one that you have but you haven't communicated? And and then all of a sudden they do they do what you haven't defined and what happens? Wham! They're, but they had no idea. What happened there, Benny? I went we whammed the uh, we whammed the screen. Okay? We have these undefined standards that, that, that we haven't communicated, and then the kids, when the kids don't do it, all of a sudden they're held accountable to it. There's also unrealistic standards, okay? Standards that we've placed way up here that there's no way that they can, they can reach. Now understand, my, my kids can become exasperated, they can become wrathful, they can become discouraged, not just because of my provocation. I mean, they can do it just because they don't want to do what? Live up to the standards. Okay? Standards are okay. But honestly, my children are no different than your children, and they're no different than me, than I am now, and as I was as a child, and that is I'm very fleshly. I'm very selfish-oriented. And so how many of you honestly, in and of yourself, love standards that limit yourself, that limit your flesh? You don't. I mean, but that's why they got to be there. I mean, that's why we have human government. I mean, human government is there, and, and human government takes on a greater and greater role when man cannot police himself. When man cannot have a self-governance, we require then a public governance. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, it's the same thing in my home, and I tell the kids, if you cannot discipline yourself, if you can't control yourself, then you force me to come in and do what? Discipline you and control you. Okay, but if you can be self-controlled and you can be self-disciplined, then then I there's there's no confrontation at all. There's no butting of heads. It's a it's a wonderful moment. Okay, but if I put in then these undefined or unrealistic or then even unreinforced standards, I am setting up this provocation provocational moment. I may state that you cannot have cookies before dinner. Okay, I mean just throw kind of a mundane thing out there. I think. Most of you would probably say the same thing. But what if the kid goes out and has a cookie? Oh, it's just one. It's no big deal. 
Well, then all of a sudden, it, he does it again the next day, because what? It was okay yesterday. Why can't it be okay today? But then all of a sudden today, you decide, you decide what? No, I am all about the rules today, and bam! Well, all of a sudden, there's this what? They were unreinforced standards, and now the kid's upset. The kid's really mad. Why? Because he doesn't know what the standard is. Expectations isn't necessarily another word for standards, but it really is. Okay? You have certain expectations. God has certain expectations for us. And he lays those out as standards for us. And whether we like it or not, we're going to look at this in a moment, God holds us to his standards. We may not always see it that way, but you know what? God allows there to be natural consequences in our lives, just like there are natural consequences in the, the life of my, my children. If I tell my kids not to run on concrete, don't run on the concrete. You're going to get hurt. Don't. And, and, and they go outside and they run on the concrete, and they trip, they fall, they they bang up their knees, they bang up their, their, their elbows, whatever. They're all scraped up and everything, right? And they come in. What do I know just happened? They, got, they just got spanked, you know? I don't need necessarily to spank them at that moment, okay? They got it. But now I can teach into that standard at this moment, can't I? Okay? Because there was a standard that I laid out, and, and, and that, you know, gee, if you would have listened to... Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, not worrying about verse 4 of chapter 6 and worrying about me provoking you to wrath. You know, but if you'd have heeded the other verses, you'd have understood that I'm not doing this because I don't want you to have fun. I'm doing it because I love you and I don't want you to get hurt. Okay? But we can do that on the other side. Unbiblical standards. Now, I think that's very key because there's sometimes that we can hold our children to legalism and not biblical standards. And there are many, in many, many churches where when the kids grow up, they walk away from the faith. And they walk away from the faith, not because of standards necessarily, but because of unbiblical standards that they were being held to beyond where, where the Bible was. Now, there's a balance there, because I know that there is a part where we apply wisdom, we apply then the principles that God has in his word. Okay, But we've got to be careful that we don't become pharisaical, if you would, where we build legalistically on top of those things which God has declared and hold our kids to a standard that is not biblical. Okay? Finally, I'm going to try to, I'm trying to go through these quickly, there is then the, the double standards. Okay? And this is the worst of the whole thing because I may have proper standards the whole way through, I may be defining them, they may be realistic, I may be reinforcing them with my kids, they may be biblical. But if I don't hold to them, what am I saying to them? I really don't believe them. And what? And I don't have to do what's for you. That's what's a frustration so many times when I see parents sending their kids off. Now, I rejoice in the Lord we have the opportunity to minister to the children on Wednesday night and such like that. But it, what's communicating to them, those kids is that there is a what? A double standard. That you have to go to church because you are a child, but it doesn't apply to me. You ought to read your Bible. You ought to memorize scripture. I want kids, moms and dads listen to this. But I don't have to do it because I'm a what? I'm an adult. I want you to do your Sparky book. I want you to do your TNT book. I want you to do your Victor verses. But I don't have to do them because I'm an adult now. Sad, sad, sad. Because know what you're communicating to your kids? Exactly what you just, what I just said. When you get to be an adult, you don't have to do this anymore because no one's going to make you do it. 
it really isn't important. What does that then become? It becomes legalism. It's not real in your life, so it'll never become real in their life. And so those kids walk away from the faith when they get to those college ages, when they can go out and they can do what they want to do. And we have got to be careful that our faith is a real faith. And the standards that we communicate to our children are standards that we ourselves want to live in our own life. Now, how many of you moms and dads are perfect? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, nah, yeah. Not, not, not a one of you perfect. So the reality is somewhere in this listing, okay, and I could probably go on a bigger list, but this is just kind of a, a summary thing. Somewhere in those six types of standards, undefined standards, unrealistic standards, unreforced standards, unbiblical standards, and double standards, somewhere along in there, five actually, those things, then you've probably done those. And you might have even done all of them at some point, okay? Do you know what needs to happen at that point? Confession. Confession to God and confession to your kids. There are going to be times when my, my kids get older as adults, okay, and they're more on an equal plane. They're friends. They're, they may be my kids, but they're also friends. You understand? They've transitioned from that point where they're un, purely under authority to the point where they're, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And at that point, even with my kids, I mean, when my guys turn 12, <clears throat> When they turn eight, I put them in this knife thing. But when they turn 12, I begin to meet with them. I tell them, I want them to, to feel free to hold me accountable. They have to do it with respect. But they can feel free to hold me accountable. When they turn 16, clearly they have a little bit more maturity. And I want them to feel, feel the freedom to do that. But <clears throat> like I shared in Sunday school this morning, the reality is if I'm being held accountable, I don't necessarily want to hear it at that moment. Because usually if I get to be held accountable, I'm in my what? I'm in my flesh, and I don't want to hear it. But while I'm in my spirit and I'm walking in the spirit, I want you to know that I want to be held accountable because I want to glorify God. And that goes for everybody here in the body as well. Okay, This is kind of an aside here, not as a parental thing, but just as an aside. I want to be held accountable. But if there's something that I, I, I need to be held accountable for, I just want you to know right up front, I'm probably going to be in my flesh and I don't want to hear it. But while I'm in my spirit and I'm standing here before the Lord, I want you to know I really do want to hear it. And so even though at that moment I may not seem like I want to hear it, it'll digest. Does that make sense? And the Lord will use it in my life. And if there's things for me to confess, I eventually will confess. And I'll come back to you and I will apologize because God will have used you as that, that, that prodding tool in my life. And that's a good thing, even though I don't like prodding tools. Okay? I hope, I hope you're following that. It kind of sounds like going around the barn there. But anyways, so for parents, we've got to demonstrate that to our kids. Where are my kids going to learn that? Where are my kids going to learn that they need to confess when they do something wrong? They're going to learn it from their parents. But guys, here's where I'm going to come back to you. They're going to learn it from their dads. Because it's the dad who they understand is that honorable guy. You know, a woman to confess, that's kind of soft, that's okay. But guys are hard, you know, and, you know, we don't do those kind of things. We just, we, we go to war, we knock off heads, we move on, you know. And, uh, well, yeah. That sounds awful, doesn't it? But that's just that's part of life. We go to war and we do that. We're, we're warriors. But our kids need to understand that even a warrior can be a godly warrior. Does that make sense? I may be the provider and protector, but I ultimately am going to be the one who stands before God and gives an account as well for the standards that I have placed upon my children and I have lived out myself. Now, the positive command, and I really want to focus on, on this side, the positive side, it says that we're supposed to bring up our children, first of all, 
in the training of the Lord. And you have on your sermon notes, if you have it there, the word padea that's right there by training. Now, the word padea is really an interesting word. In years ago, when Jessica um, was involved with spelling bees and went to the National Bee and stuff, they would be given a spelling bee book. It, it's not called that anymore, right? It's just called Spellbound now or something like that. Spell it. Anyways, but the little booklet that they were given was called a paideia. Paideia, okay? And a paideia is um, well-rounded knowledge. And you can see there in parentheses, predominantly regarding self-control. Now, in this paideia, they would have lists of words of various subjects that the kids were supposed to learn. But what's really interesting is this concept, this Greek concept of paideia, okay? And I want you to read this because um, this is from a, a secular source, okay? This is not a biblical source of the concept of paideia. And it says, since self-government was important to the Greeks, paideia, combined with ethos, or habits, made a man good and made him capable as a citizen or a king. This education was not about learning a trade or an art, but was about training for liberty, for freedom, and nobility. Paideia is the cultural heritage that is continued through the generations. As we have been going through the David Barton series on the Christian foundations of the United States, it's been amazing to realize how far off the heritage we are. And that if our nation would have continued in the cultural heritage that we had back in the 1600s and 1700s, where would we be today? It wasn't until the 1920s or so that we as a nation decided we no longer believed in the Creator God, but we believed in the God of evolution. It wasn't until the 1960s that we no longer wanted to have the Word of God um, in presence of God in our schools because we got rid of um, Bible reading and we got rid of prayer. And it wasn't then until the 70s where we didn't sanctify life. Now, I'm not saying that some of that stuff wasn't going on in our, in our country. But it wasn't until those days, and this is just a little over a generation ago, two generations ago in our country, where we began to lose focus of the godly heritage. Paideia, dads, you are told to paideia your children in the Lord, to train them, to instruct them in the things of God. Why? Because it is your responsibility to be training learned and responsible citizens of Christ's kingdom. I say this in Awana conferences, and I've said it here, I'm sure. The major cause for failure in the church of the United States is men. Not living a biblical standard in their life and not communicating the biblical standard to their children. God holds men accountable and responsible to be the spiritual leaders of their home. It's not your wife. It's not the mom. Even if you homeschool and your, and your wife may do some of the teaching at home, it is ultimately still the dad's responsibility to oversee. And one of the things that's sad is sometimes because of that, and you do the Bible type stuff during school time, then there's never a time where you have, quote unquote, a family altar or where dad is actually leading the spiritual world. You should continue to do that. I don't want to lift us up. I don't mean it at all. I am, I am a cracked pot for sure. I am not a, uh, the, the, the perfect example of anything. But we, every evening, we still have a family devotion time. Okay? 
Some nights, if we're running late, it may want to be in a 10.30 and we just get together to pray. Okay? But the goal is to read the Bible, to sing, and pray. That's the goal. Okay? And it may be that we read a biography of a, of a, um, a Christian hero of the past or whatever. But whatever it is, we want to spend that time together. And I'm the one who's supposed to lead it. Now, if I'm not there, hopefully Marsha will lead it. If Marsha and I aren't there, then the kids know that they're supposed to get together and they're supposed to have this time. And the guys generally are the ones who are supposed to lead it. So if we're not there, Tim and Ben know that they're supposed to lead it. And so I come home and I find out the next night when we go do a Bible reading, are we in Exodus or are we in Psalms? They're asking, you know, and I said, well, we're going to be in Exodus or whatever. I said, what'd you do last night? And all of a sudden, Andrew or Anna will pop up and said, we read a Psalm last night, you know, or whatever. So I know it's happening. That has to happen in your home. You men have to be the ones who are seeking to set the standard to train up that next generation of godly citizens of Christ's kingdom, not of the United States. Now, honestly, the more we seek to raise up Christ's kingdom, the more godly this nation is going to be. Does that make sense? Sometimes we're so worried about the United States, we're more worried about the United States than we are about the kingdom of God. If we worry about the kingdom of God, guess what's going to happen in the United States? It's going to have the revival that we want. But if we're not worried about the kingdom of God, and we're not worried about the kingdom of God expanding, if we're only worrying about a great awakening and a revival in the United States, it's never going to happen. We want to pray about it, but we don't want to be involved in it. Well, I know that I've got seven disciples in my house. Regardless of all you, and regardless of everybody else that God has ever placed in my life, I know that I'm going to give an account for seven disciples one day. And those are the ones that I have to invest my life in. I mean, if there's nobody else that I'm investing my life in, it's those seven. Okay? Now... <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for paideia of righteousness, for the training, for the instruction in righteousness. Well, okay, so as a dad, I'm supposed to bring my children up in the instruction of the Lord. Where do you think that I should come up with the manual to train my kids with? So many times we're looking out there at the Christian bookstores and everybody else trying to find something to use to train up our kids with. Well, God says that the scriptures are, are to be given by his breath, they're God-breathed, and they're profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, paideia, of righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God, I think that's what I'm supposed to be seeking to equip, Right? Men of God, people growing up in the righteousness and citizens of the kingdom, that the man of God may be complete. These are neat words here. Complete, thoroughly equipped. Note that the word there, complete, is the word artizo, which means to complete. But thoroughly equipped is from the ekartizo, and it literally means to out-complete, okay? Complete out of, which we would bring in today to outfit. If you want to be an outfitter, Okay, Matt wants to be an outfitter one day. He would he would chomp at the bit to maybe have a big spread in Montana or whatever, and and uh, <clears throat> to be an outfitter. Okay, well, what does an outfitter do? Have any of you ever gone to an outfitter or done anything with an outfitter? What's the outfitter do? The, he, he outfits you. He gives you everything you need to do whatever that's going to be. So if you're going on a moose hunt. When you go there, he's got the guns, he's got the shells, 
He's got whatever you need. He's got the, the horses, the pack mules, the, if you get the moose to bring it out. He's got the knives, the saws, whatever it's going to take to be able to <clears throat> take care of that moose back in the woods. Because you know when you get a moose, you don't just strap it on your shoulders and carry it out. I mean, you've got to take care of it where it's at, and then you pack it out. Okay? It may be that you're, you're going on a, with a canoe thing. And so you're not taking a canoe on the plane with you. You get there, he's already got the canoes. It may be that, like when we go to... Um, to Canada, if you ever come to Canada with me, when we get there, I'm not, I honestly am not taking a pontoon boat with me. It, it, it doesn't happen. But I'm going to tell you that within an hour of us getting there, we're going to get on a pontoon boat <clears throat> that's already fueled, it's already ready for us. When I get there, I've already told them what kind of foods we want, and they have already packed our food containers. So that all we got to do is when we get there, make sure that we pack an upriver bag, and we load everything onto the boat, and we go. And so within an hour, the goal was within an hour of us hitting, hitting the, the property line, hitting the river, and we cross over the boat, we're going upriver, <clears throat> 26 miles. Why? Because there was somebody who was an outfitter. In fact, Matt gets to do that this year. He's going to be up in Canada as the outfitter. So he gets to do that in Canada. It'll be a lot of fun. But there's going to be somebody there who's going to get all that stuff ready for me so that when I get there, I don't have to think about it. Okay, dads. What does this mean? Well, God has given you his word. It's profitable for all these things so that you can outfit your kids. You are the outfitter of your children. You have everything you need at your disposal to give it to your children. If your children ask you questions about finances, can you get the answers? If they ask you about relationships sexuality, whatever it is, Dad, where will you find the answers? Are you going to go to the world to give them what the world says? Or are you going to go to what God says is the standard for information? It's profitable for not just doctrine, and we consider doctrine like the um, theologies and stuff like that, but it's also for reproof, correction, and instruction, the training in righteousness. So that they can be equipped for what? Every good work. If I want my children to be, to have the ability to be self-governing and to be a, capable citizens of, of Christ's kingdom, then I need to be able to use the word of God in their life. We read from Hebrews 12 this morning. Now, I don't know if you <clears throat> noticed how many times that word chasten was there. Um, but we understand the word chasten to mean what? Put another word in there. Spank. Guess which Greek word is that word for chasten? Paideia. That's the concept of paideia. Paideia is that concept of instruction, of instruction of righteousness, making that, 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 if you would, from our perspective, godly citizen. And sometimes it takes in that instruction... To not just teach verbally, sometimes I may have to teach with the Board of Education and applying it to the seat of learning. Okay? And what I'm told in Hebrews chapter 12 is that is the standard that God uses. See, not only am I reflecting Christ, I'm reflecting the Father to the world. And I should be fathering my children just as God fathers me. And God says, that he says, my son, this is quoting from Proverbs. We'll look at this in a moment. Do not despise the chastening of Yahweh, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom Yahweh loves, he what? He chastens. And then drop down to verse 8. 
But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you are living in disobedience to God, if you're walking in darkness, you have no problem with it at all. And God is not chastising you. If He's not chastening you, and if He is not paideaing you, if He's not instructing you, you're not His child. I didn't say it. He did. I always tell people, it's one of the ways to know. Are you really saved? If you can walk in darkness and God doesn't spank you, you're probably not His. But if you, you know, I don't know about you, but I know a difference between now and when I was a teenager. I didn't have a problem with certain things that I did when I was a teenager. But now, when I start to drift into those thought processes or whatever, all of a sudden I'm what? I'm convicted. And I'm convicted not just because it's bad for me socially, morally. Does that make sense? As a good moral person here in the world. But it's detestable in the nostrils and the eyes of my father. And that's enough to bring me down. It doesn't mean I don't ever struggle with my flesh. I struggle with my flesh. But I think God gets the glory when, when I, my flesh wants something so bad, but my spirit says, no, no, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's an abomination to God, and I want to please God more than I want to please my flesh. Does that make sense? Sometimes I give in to my flesh. And that's when God slaps me a little bit. I tell the story about when I was in St. Louis and I was crying out to God, God, I remember the joy of my salvation. I just don't, I just don't know how to get it back. And God picked me up and slammed me against the wall three times. And I, people look at me and go, huh? I said, no, okay, I literally wasn't picked up and slammed in the wall. But spiritually speaking, within me, I was. God said, listen, I taught you that. That was the first message I ever gave you way back when you were saved. It was that prima thing, okay, the pray, read, study, investigate, meditate, and apply God's word. God had to slap me side the head and say, I have taught you that, and I have been with you on it, but you have been the one who walked away, not me. And God will do that for us. Whether it's something physically, I mean, honestly, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul's talking about the man who was having a relationship with his father's wife that was something the Gentiles wouldn't even do. Paul said, hand him over to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed, but his soul will be saved. That, that chastening becomes stronger and stronger as it goes on. Now, you know, as dads, we've got to be careful because sometimes we don't go in love, we go in anger. And our chastening is abuse, not love not instruction and teaching, the paideia that it's supposed to be. Okay, But notice then, it says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. Again, that's the word, paideia. Who have instructed us, who have taught us. In other words, they've done the same thing. And we haven't despised them. Finish this out here in verse 11. It says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Would you all agree with that? I mean, how many of you, your mom, mom or your dad said, Go to my room and wait for me. Or go downstairs and wait for me. Whatever the place was, you knew, okay? And you, you knew that they were counting to ten so they could gain control. So at least you were hoping they were, okay? <clears throat> and then they were going to come in with the Board of Education to apply to the seat of learning, okay? I don't think any of us said, wow, great, I did it again. I'm so excited. I always like to ask my kids that. Do you like this? You know, no. Then, do you know what caused, yes. Then why are we here? <laughs> Anyways, I mean, there's a cause and effect thing happening here, okay? So, it's not joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Dads, if you are unwilling to, to use the rod 
in the life of your children, then we're going to see this in a moment from the book of Proverbs. Turn to the book of Proverbs while I'm talking to you on this, okay? Because we're going to be looking at a bunch of passages. Then the Bible really says that you don't love them. Okay? That if you spare the rod, you, you hate the child. You spoil the child. But that if you use the rod, then it's out of love. Okay? Well, look what it then says. It says, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained or exercised by it. That's the word where we get the word gymnasium from. Gymnasio. And it means to, to be exercised. It's, it's, it's to, to work out. And so, in a sense, you are the one, again, with the paideia, the instruction, who are exercising and training your kids. Why do you think in school, I mean, I know some people don't like school, and chiefly when we were kids, we don't like school. But why do you think, especially in math, that they give them a bunch of extra problems to do? So they can exercise and they can learn. And so they do the exercises, the math exercises. So they do the 1 plus 1 is 2, and 1 plus 2 is 3, and 1 plus 3 is 4. And when I tutored in math, every week when a kid came in, I always made them do the multiplication table. The very first time, I timed them to see how long they get, just from 0 to 9, or 1 to 9. And it was usually, because that's usually where, if I had to work with a kid for tutoring in math, it went all the way back to the foundations. They just didn't have the foundations. And it was minutes long. And I told them where we're going to get down to is you're going to do this in less than two minutes. <gasps> and so every week I would make them do the multiplication table. And I would train them and I would teach them some tricks and how to remember and to learn and do those things so that they could hear 9 times 8 is 72 and they don't have to sit there. I mean, you'd be surprised. 13-year-olds, you say 9 times 8 and they go... And, and they're trying to figure this thing out. It should, it should be this. 9 times 8 is 72. You should be able to say 13 times 5 is... 65, and get it. Okay, You say, well, that's just because you love math. No, it's because there are certain things that, that are trained, exercised into you. Okay, There are other things from other areas of life that I know, not just math, because not because I love it, but because it was what? Exercised into me. Repetition is the key to learning, retention. That's exactly right. Hopefully you've been in Proverbs there now. And so let's look at Proverbs 1, verse 2. To know wisdom and paideia. To know wisdom and paideia. To perceive words of understanding. Verse uh, verse 3. To receive instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. Drop down to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, when I say paideia, I understand that this is in the, the Hebrew. The Hebrew word here is the word musar. Okay, And the word musar means instruction, training, which includes potentially chastening. And what you're going to see is that word is used back and forth as well. The same word used for instruction here is going to be the same word it's used for the chastening like it was in Hebrews 12. So many times we, we don't put those things together, but that, that is supposed to be instructional time. But in verse, verse 7, we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and Paideia. Verse 8 says, My son, hear the paideia of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Well, who's the fool? The fool is the one who rejects what? Paideia. They they reject the, the instruction that is supposed to be leading them to be good moral citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay? Chapter 3. Go ahead. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and hopefully, somewhere along the line, they, they do get trained by it. But yes, there are times when we, like you said, with God, 
We reject it. We accept it for the moment. But what's interesting, and I didn't, we didn't read that far beyond uh, verse 17, but if you read verse 18, 19, 20, and, and beyond, it starts talking about Esau. Not like Esau, who Esau heard that him having a Canaanite woman was, was, was not, not a good thing. You know, that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that Isaac and Rebekah, that it was a sword of them. So what did he do? He went and married another daughter, but this time it was the daughter of Ishmael. So rather than getting a godly wife, he still went to the, to the pagans to get another wife. And so he would not repent. He had tears. He wanted the, the, um, the birthright back. He wanted the inheritance back, the double portion back, but he would not seek it with repentance, changing the way he thought. And so sometimes it may take then numerous times to, to continually bringing them back to the standard. To the, to the training. And exactly, I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, think about it. You, you go, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Tiger Woods right now. Why that just propped in my brain? Maybe because I, I saw in yesterday's paper or something like that. He's back up in the leaderboard or whatever. But guys, even at that level, have a swing coach. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he should be a swing coach, <laughs> you know? But he's got a swing coach. I mean, in the swing coaches he has, did they ever be, do anything in the pros? No. And so here's this guy who never made any money. He's, he's, he's coaching the guy who's, was at least for however many weeks, number one in the world. But he recognizes the fact that he needs to what? Continually improve. He needs somebody that's going to be there to continually train him and teach him. Okay? Because it's easy for even someone at that level to do what? Slip into bad habits. Okay? So when we talk about that from the Christian's perspective, how easy it is for us to slide back. Evil communication corrupts Good manners, okay? Good standards, exactly right. So, Proverbs 3, verse 11, we read, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Okay? The word chastening there, not the word correction, but the word chastening is our word, and for the Greek um, translation of it, is paideia. Okay? It's the Hebrew word, musar. And so, in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament, that is the word paideia. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, we read, hear my children, the paideia of a father, and give attention to no understanding. And again, it's musar. And when I was working with the victors on this um, a couple months ago, we were going through and we talked about the word musar. It's really an eye-opener when you begin to realize that this is talking about receiving that instruction that you're going to get even at the time of spankings. Even at the time when you really are stiff-necked and stubborn-hearted and you're really struggling, it's saying, listen, be soft and listen to this instruction you're going to get. Chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> this is, um, we saw this last week when we talked about the obedience side for the kids. But for the, for the dad side, it's when the kid disobeys, Ben, like you were just saying. It says, and how I have hated instruction. How I hated the paideia. And my heart despised the correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers. And what's the context here? It's saying, and now here I am in the pit. I mean, I'm here because... I despise instruction, which means, Dad, you're supposed to be doing what? Giving the instruction, regardless of whether they're going to listen to it or not. Here's my kid's favorite verse. No, it's not. I, I joke, but I, I, I have them turned to Proverbs 12.1, you know, when, when I'm having a struggle. And it says, Whoever loves paideia, whoever loves instruction, loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is what? Stupid. Now, in my house, you are not allowed to call anybody stupid. That's a spanking offense, okay? Because you're not loving your neighbor. I'm not calling them stupid. Who is? 
Ultimately, God is, but they are themselves. Because if they are rejecting correction, what are they saying? I am stupid. By God's standards, the one who does that is stupid. Proverbs 13, verse 18. And I want to build that into them, that when they reject it, when they seek to be rebellious, that it's not, re- it's not about me, their dad, it's about God. That they want to understand that they don't want to be rebellious to God. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains paideia. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Okay? And then finally here in, in Proverbs 22.15. 22.15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of Paideia will drive it far from him. Okay? Your kids are just like my kids, just like we were when we were kids. We are fools. There's foolishness within us. The, the, in, the, in the Bible, the term foolishness is equated with the term rebellion, rebelliousness. We were born sinners. We were born wanting our own thing, our own self. We want, we want everything about me. Well, what happens when, when I, wanting only what I want, come into contact with my dad, who is the authority and who has established what he wants in my home? We instantly have a what? We have a confrontational moment, okay? Biblically, that's called rebellion, okay? I begin to rebel against the authority that's there, my dad. And the Bible says that I am then foolish. Well, the Bible then says that as the authority, we are supposed to take that rod of reproof and that will bring the instruction to the child. Okay, so uh, hopefully that's beat the dead horse enough about this concept of paideia. It's not about spanking. It's about instructing. It's about me as a dad bringing up a well-rounded citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Okay, but it also says I'm supposed to bring him up into admonition of the Lord, which is really exciting. It's the word nuthesia, and we don't have a lot of time to spend on this. Okay, and so I, I knew that coming into this I wouldn't be. But it's the word where we get nuthetic counseling from today. Okay. And it means to warn or call attention to, to admonish or to rebuke. Again, both of those almost seem to be a negative term, but they're not negative terms. They're positive terms. They're only negative terms from the perspective of who? A selfish child. Okay? If you're a selfish child, then are you going to want to be paideid or nuthesied? No. You, you don't want anybody to tell you what to, to think or what you should do. Okay? But from the, from the, the perspective of God, they are positive terms. And dads, we are supposed to be the instructors and the counselors for our kids. We are supposed to be the ones who are warning or calling attention to something that's ahead. You know, the wise man sees the evil ahead and does what? He avoids it. But the fool does what? He goes head on into it. That's exactly right. Well, if foolishness is bound up in the heart of my child, okay, then there are going to be times, honestly, hopefully anyway, that I have outgrown some of my foolishness and I am a little bit wiser now. There's going to be times when I'll pick on Andrew, and, and not that I think you're always a fool, buddy, okay, but the, you know, just our age-wise, okay, that there's going to be times when we're going to be looking at something and he's just going to see it from the perspective of what? Fun. From the child. Fun. Oh, I see fun. I'm going to see it from the perspective of one who has come through that time, some from the perspective of an adult, and I say, but beyond that is the what? is the evil. You can't just look right here. You've got to look beyond the moment and see the evil that's there. And so at that time, I then, as the adult, have to do what? I have to restrain them. I have to restrain him. And so just as we saw um, a few weeks ago, I can't remember, it was um, 
what we were discussing, but we talked about Aaron and how the children of Israel fell into sin. And what the Bible says that it was because Aaron had not restrained them. Aaron was the was the spiritual leader, and he was not restraining those who were underneath him from going into sin. Dad, you are that restraining influence. You are the counselor for your children. You are the one who's supposed to bring the admonition to them. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, that's Israel, during the times of the wilderness journeys, that they were written for our admonition, our counseling, our learning, our rebuke. In other words, because there are going to be times in my life that I start to, to, to creep into idolatry or, or lustfulness or whatever, and I'm supposed to be able to look at what happened to Israel. And it wasn't positive. And I'm supposed to learn the lesson. I'm supposed to gain counsel and admonition from that. And so then I'm supposed to do that to the end of the age. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, and then 10 to 12. Verse 7 talks about the, the mother. says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And you are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. There's an assumption happening there, isn't there? What's the assumption? That a father is not dawdling his child. The father is not, you know, that's why, you know, sometimes you look at the, the grandfather, grandparent age, and grandparents like to what? To dawdle over the kids, you know? And, um, but as a, you know, as a parent, we know that we're responsible ultimately. And as a father, the, the assumption is that you're exhorting, comforting, and what? Charging them, okay? And the word for comforting even there is the word parakaleo, is you're calling them alongside. It can be used as the word exhortation as well, okay? And so the idea is that they're all words of just inspiring them, inspiring them to, to, a, to a good thing. So instead of provoking them, stirring them up to bad, to evil, and to, to wrath and, and um, um, discouragement, rather I'm going to stir them up, I'm going to provoke them, I'm going to train them up to godliness, Okay? Finally, Genesis 18, verse 19. This is about um, what Yahweh said about Abraham. Now, I find this very interesting. Again, we talked about it in Sunday school. Abraham wasn't a perfect leader. okay? But look at what when God says that he called Abraham for a purpose. He says, For I, Yahweh, have known him, that is Abraham, and that known is the word Yadah, which means to know intimately. It's not just to know about. okay? I've known him, Abraham, in order that, this is my purpose, that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. There's the conditional. Do you see the conditional? God has said that Abraham, the man, the father, the husband, that he was the one who was responsible to train up his children and his whole household in the ways of the Lord for righteousness and justice. Why? So that ultimately that God would be able to do the blessings that he promised him. If you want your household to be blessed, then guys, you have to be the spiritual leader. It's not going to help in any other way. God has put it out there. He has an expectation for us as men to be those spiritual leaders. And if we want our homes to be blessed, then it has to be built upon the foundation of the Lord. Blessed is the man or, or, sorry. Unless the Lord builds the house, they what? They labor in vain who build it. And so we have got to, men, be seeking to use God's word and God's standards in the training of our children. So, dads, 
parents, moms too, how well are you training learned and responsible citizens of Christ's kingdom? If the next generation of Christianity depended upon you in your home, where would we be? Are you training and equipping your children, or are you leaving it to your wife? Guys, again, I'm not going to back off on this. This is Ever since I got saved, I mean, I felt like this has been my, the, the, the passion that God has placed in my heart for ministry, and that is for men. The men to be called back into the relationship with God and to be godly men and leaders of their homes. Kids, kids, it's been about your dads this time, not about you. But how well are you accepting the instruction of your parents? It makes it a whole lot easier as a dad to instruct my kids when they receive it. Yes? Would you dads agree on that one? <laughs> You know, when there's not a whole lot of confrontation happening, it's easy to teach. But when I continually get that confrontation back, sometimes I just want to do what? <sighs> Forget it. <laughs> I can't deal with this. So in the end, how well are our homes reflecting Christ to our community? Listen, we call this family, Bible, church. And we declare to the world that we want to build our families on the Word of God. When, when people look at the families in this church... They're gonna, you, you, individual family are gonna reflect this church. It's not Bob's church. It's, it's God's church. It's Christ's church. But it's us as a body in this church. And in a few weeks we're gonna start talking about that reflection as a body. But here's one specifically for us right now. Is our homes. Your home. Is it a home built firm upon the Savior? Where Christ is revered? Where His word is spoken? Where the, the hymns of the faith are sung? Where you pray? Together, as a family, it ought to be. And everybody ought to know, men, you are that spiritual leader of the house. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you are our godly Father. And you have called us, Father, to be perfect as you are perfect, and to be holy as you are, as you are holy. Lord, I pray that for the men that are here, that you would help each of us to seek perfection. Not that we necessarily are going to attain it here, but Lord, that we desire it and that we desire to lead our homes in the way that you would lead our homes, that we desire to reflect Christ in our relationship with our children, in our relationship with our wives, and that our wives desire to to reflect you in their relationship with the children and with us, and that our children desire to reflect you in their relationships with us as well. God, that you would be magnified, that you would be modeled in everything we do, in everything we say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.